Good morning. Welcome to His People Church. And we are passionate about Him and people. Him, if you are wondering, is Jesus Christ. We love our Lord and it's such a privilege for us to serve Him. And it's a privilege for me to serve you by bringing the word this morning. And I, and I trust that this is, this is a word that will encourage you, bring, bring light into whatever you are facing and, and really that it will bring life to you. So my name is Jacques and together with my lovely wife Jenny, we are the senior pastors of His People in Peter Maritzburg. And there's our website at the bottom if you want to get more info. So let's go on. So we've been busy with a series leading up to Easter. And in this season, the 40 days before Easter is known as Lent. And we are looking at the three tests or temptations that Jesus faced um, in the wilderness or in the desert. And Matthew chapter 4 is where they, where they are. And so two weeks ago, I looked at the first temptation to turn rocks into bread. Uh, and, that and then last week, Cass shared the second temptation, which was to jump from the top of the temple down and uh, let the angels catch Jesus and you know, impress everybody. And this week, we're looking at the third temptation, which is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 to 11, where, where Satan basically offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world and says, if you worship me, you can have it all. And we're going to unpack that. But I want to just step back a little bit and, and ask this question. Why did Jesus go through these temptations? It says that, that the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness and that he was tempted. But why did this happen? And, and I want to look at three portions of scripture from the book of Hebrews that just describes, and Hebrews is such a beautiful book because it describes Jesus as a high priest and just tying into all the Hebrew and Old Testament symbolism about the pattern of worship in the Old Testament and looking how Jesus fulfills that in the heavenly tabernacle and, and, and how we approach God today. So let's just look at it. This is the first point I want to make. Why did Jesus endure this testing? To break the power of the devil and set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear, to the fear of dying. You know that the fear of dying has, has I mean, in surveys, has been just one of the greatest fears. But as, as Christians, it's just, it's not, it's not an issue. I remember hearing a story years ago of um, these, these people, these Christians, being threatened uh, because of their faith. And this one guy made a chirp that I found was so amazing. Uh, when he was threatened with death, uh, he said, just, I just want to understand this. Uh, so you are threatening me with heaven. Are you, are you trying to scare me? <laughs> now, I don't know the context and I don't know if it was true, but, but that is the reality, you know, that, uh, but let's read the scripture, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being, could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Verse 15, only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as, sl as slaves 
to the fear of dying. Just what a beautiful portion of scripture. The second reason why did Jesus endure this testing is to become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and to take away our sins. And in this other portion of scripture, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 to 18, therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. In every respect, like you, like me. His brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful. That's why we get mercy when we go before the Father. Because Jesus is there. And he, he's made the same way. He's experienced every testing that you and I go through. So that's why we get mercy. And he's a merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, there we go, he's gone through it. He is able to help us when we are being tested. So Jesus is able to help us when we go through testing. And this is why the story and looking at Jesus' testing is so helpful. Because it's just a few verses, but if you look at what they represent, the categories of testing that they represent and know that Jesus went through that. So therefore, when we face it, he's able to help us, not just by us reading that scripture, but, but by his presence in us. The fact that Christ is inside of us, he's able to help us. It's just so encouraging. And the third reason why did Jesus endure this testing is so that he could understand our weaknesses. And you know, understanding is such a key thing in relationships. Hebrews 4 verse 15 to 16 says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings we do. All of the same testings. Yet he did not sin. You see folks, it's not a big, it's not an issue to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. Hey? So, I get tempted. My wife gets tempted. You name it. The Pope gets tempted. We all get tempted. It's not an issue. The issue is when that alternative opens up, when we're aware we're on the route, but there's another option that's opening up or a couple of options. The question is, do we get off the road, God's highway of holiness, or do we get off that highway or, or not? That's the question. So being tempted isn't a bad thing. Let's just say it's not something that we need to be shameful about. The problem arises when we get on that detour that is not God's plan. That's, that's when things, things get sticky. So verse 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious Father. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Amazing. We come boldly to our gracious God to receive mercy and grace. Wow, these scriptures are amazing. I was actually, when I was sharing them with my wife before I, before we, we uh, recorded this, I said to her, I said, these words of scripture are just so beautiful by themselves. I nearly don't want to unpack it. I'm scared. It, I, I, will, I, I won't do these words justice. It is beautiful. We come boldly to find mercy and grace when we need it most. And so this is why I'm trying to highlight why studying this portion of scripture in Matthew about Jesus testing is so important. Because 
if we look also how Jesus dealt with it, he was showing us how we also need to deal with these things when we face them. So let's just read the third temptation. Matthew 4, verse 8 to 11. I've put it on the screen for you. Again, verse 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, I just want to highlight that in this portion of scripture, it says there that um, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And, and, and it's from this place that, that most likely that, that, that visions were um, brought before Jesus of everything that the world has to offer. Now, let's just look at and what I actually want to do firstly is look at just a, a little table that I just drew up for you showing the three different temptations and the different aspects that they touch on. So you can just see kind of how they fit together. So the first on the table I've got here is they have just numbered them one, two, three, the first three temptations as we find in Matthew. Um, so the, the location, where were these temptations? So the first one was in the desert, changing the stones into bread. It was hot. The desert is no way you can deny a difficult place. It's a tough place. It's, an, it's a tough time when we go through hardships. That's what the desert does represent. It's also a time where uh, very often a desert place was a place we would withdraw from people by ourselves. And, and often, you know, it is when we, when we are uh, away from people that sometimes we can be susceptible. The second temptation, and Cass highlighted this so beautifully, was on top of the temple. Now remember the temple was the center of worship for the nation of Israel. The temple, the temple represents a very spiritual place, a, a spiritual hot, hot spot. And, and it's right there in this spiritual hot spot that, that this temp, the second temptation happens. And you see the desert is a hard place. The temple is a very spiritual place. And three is the world. He's on the mountain looking at the kingdoms of the world. That's what, what the temptation is. And everything that the world has to offer. You want to know what it looks like? Probably... You know, look at, uh, scan through some TV channels or, or you know, just go on the internet. I mean, there's many ways you can get what does this look like. I don't think I need to unpack what that one looks like. But the thing that struck me when you just look at these locations is that we can be tempted in so many different places. You know, and I think the one that 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 is is maybe a bit surprising to us. We know, you know, in the desert hard places it's like yeah that's that's like obvious i think the one being tempted on the temple you know in spiritual places you kind of think hey you know i come to church i'm not going to get tempted let me submit to you that spiritual pride is is really not pretty on anybody and that's look at what happened to the pharisees in jesus time they were the ones who were resisting the work of god and what god was doing and, and literally opposing the work of God. 
spiritual pride blinds you and spiritual pride even more so. So let's not be under any illusions that just because, you know, we're going to church, we're not susceptible to, to temptation. And then, you know, in the world, and this is actually, if you just think about where that is, it was on top of a mountain. A mountain speaks about, you know, you've, when you say you've, you've reached the top, what does it speak about? You've, you've arrived. You, you're on the pinnacle. You're achieving. You're an achiever. And I wanted to contrast that between the desert, which is a low place, a tough place, a lonely place, whereas being on top of the world, you, you're on top of it all. But another place for pride, uh, there's nothing um, that, that success doesn't provoke in a person um, more than just pride and arrogance, etc. And so whether we're in valleys, whether we're on top of the world, whether we're in spiritual places, hey, Temptation can happen everywhere. We've got to guard our heart. A heart that's purely devoted to Jesus, to following Him, obeying Him wherever, whatever, whatever station we are, the highs of life, the lows of life, the spiritual places and the deserts, wherever. A heart that's wholly devoted to the Lord, I believe, is just the purest, the purest form of staying on the, on the highway of holiness. So what were the tests? Let's just look at them. The first test in the desert was, hey, you know, why don't you make bread out of these stones? Do it yourself. Satisfy yourself. And we unpacked it two weeks ago. But it's like, you know, do it your way. Just get it done. The second temptation Cass highlighted, this temptation, you know, if Jesus was on the temple, the central place of worship in Israel, he would have been seen by everybody. It was a very, very prominent position high up on top of the temple. I think I said 57 meters high. It's, it's, it's about 15 stories. It's, it's a substantial idea. You would have been seen. It's this whole thing of, look at me. Here I am. Aren't I amazing? And, and hey, you know, so often spiritual places are places that can, <laughs> the pulpit. Let's just say, what's the pulpit? It is a place of prominence. So many people aspire to the pulpit. They want to, they wanna, you, you know, bring the word. Look at me. I want to show you what I've got. That, all that kind of stuff. And those are places that we get tempted with all that kind of stuff. It's just the wrong heart and the wrong motive to want to bring the word of God from the pulpit, for example. And then this, this one is what we're going to unpack here. Um, it's the shortcut to getting it all now. That is what this temptation is. When, when, when Satan said, hey, just worship me and you get it all. All the nations, everything is yours. It was a shortcut to getting what Jesus came to do. And we know ultimately the Bible says the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Everybody, all nations, all nations will, will come to the Lord in the end. We know that. So in the end, he is going to get it all. In the end, he's going to get all the glory. But he's not getting it by taking a shortcut, by doing what Satan tempted him to do or tested him and said, hey, Worship me and I'll just give it all. Right now, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do any of the suffering stuff. Bypass the suffering. Just listen to me, worship me, and I'll give it to you. Jesus refused the easy road. He refused the shortcut. And, and that is the essence of this temptation. We're going to unpack it a little bit more. But it's just so important just the whole time to remember Jesus' response to the first testing was, he said, it is written Okay, in the second temptation, he also said it is written. 
And the third temptation, he rebuked Satan and he said, it is written. We're going to just look at those um, just a little bit later um, in, in detail. So I'm not putting it up right now. But let's look more at this third testing. This third testing gave Jesus the option to take a shortcut around the cross. Jesus came to win all the kingdoms of the world and their glory back from Satan's dominion. But Satan offers them to Jesus if Jesus will only worship him. And, you know, the desire to take a shortcut to success, if, especially if, if you are so focused, so goal-oriented, so, so determined to achieve something, it's so easy to, to, to fall into the trap of taking a shortcut that you think will get you there. And I'm just putting this little quote up. Many people will pass the test of failure. You know, hardships are, I think sometimes people people think, mm, won't make it. But I just, I just know in my experience, people are more resilient than they think they are. And so people will pass the test of failure. However, many will fail the test of success. The desire to be on top of that mountain, whatever the mountain is. Remember the seven mountains of influence that we've looked at, you know, whether it is an economic mountain of, of, of financial success, whether it is in, in the whole entertainment industry, on the mountain of, 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 of fame, uh, whether it's fame or fortune or whatever the mountain is that you aspiring to go after. Many will fail the test of success. And that's what this temptation is all about. So all Jesus would have to do is give Satan what he has been longing for ever since he fell. Worship and recognition from God. That's what he's looking for. So that's what he's looking for. So Satan's actually revealing his hand. This is his greatest desire is to be worshipped. How do we know this? Isaiah 14 verse 13 to 14 gives us a glimpse as to what was in the heart of Satan before he fell and why he was cast by God out of heaven with a third of, of the angels that had actually um, followed him. It says here in Isaiah 14, these are words that are ascribed to Satan and what happened in the rebellion in heaven. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You know, in the scripture five times, we have those two words, I will, I will. Uh, you read the scripture, do you hear that determination for something that is very self-centered, egocentrical, I will. I want it. I'm. And you know, so often, I, I love goal setting. Please set goals. Go for goals. They help us to focus. And focus is important, etc. But you know, I remember something that my dad often used to say. Whenever, whenever he used to talk about the future and, you know, if we're planning a holiday, we're going to visit some friends or family. He would always say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And and I, I kind of, it became, I, he always spoke like that. And then, one day, I actually found that scripture in the Bible. 
where it wasn't, I will, we will go there and we will do this. Why? Why was my dad saying that? Where does this come from? And I want to contrast this between all this I will, self-centered determination. I'm going to do it. Listen, through determination, we can achieve a lot. The question is, is it godly? And the most important question, is it God's will? Is that thing you're going after, you're giving your life, your heart and soul for, is it God's stuff? Is it God's will? And look what James says. Quite amazing. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Have you heard those people who say, I'm going to do this and we're going to do this and etc. Look what verse 14 says. Why do you not, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. <laughs> and I think how many of us, you know, with pandemic and lockdown, how many of us really honestly kind of saw this down the road? What is your life, James says? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's very humbling. That's sobering. These verses, we just need to hear them sometimes. Verse 15, this is what it comes to. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it is the Lord's will. I think that's the key. If it is the Lord's will. Sometimes, folks, I want to submit to you, most times, having a heart of Lord, if this is your will. Because, folks, if it's not, and we're going after it, hammer and tongs. Folks, it, all, it, it often does not look, look pretty. It often just, let me submit you, it hurts people. It doesn't bring God glory, etc. And so this statement, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Can you see the contrast between how we see Satan's heart in Isaiah 14? I will, I will, I will versus if it's the Lord's will. Folks, are you willing to lay down something that maybe you've been gunning for, going after a hammer and tongs, and just lay down and say, Lord, if it's your will, I will do it. But if it's not, I will lay down. You know, there is just such wisdom, there's such grace, there's such beauty in somebody who holds something from God, but holds it lightly. And I say this, I'm not saying you must let go your goals, let, let, let them go for just any reason. But there are times where sometimes God asks us to put it on the altar. Just like the story of Abram and Isaac where Abram was asked to lay his precious son, the son of promise, on the altar. God sometimes does that. And we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. And you know, the reality is, I don't know if I highlighted it there. In the story of Isaac and Abraham, God gave Isaac back to him. I want to say, sometimes, sometimes the thing we put in the altar, the fire from God comes and it's consumed and it's a beautiful sacrifice to the Lord. We don't get it back and it isn't resurrected. Remember I highlighted that a few weeks ago. Sometimes the Lord doesn't give it back. And that is just the God zone. I don't know why. Sometimes we lay something down, we bury a seed, and life comes forth and it grows. Sometimes it doesn't. It dies. The seed does not grow again. I, that is in the realm of mystery. I don't understand it. 
But I would still rather have a heart of, Lord, if it's your will, we will do this or that, rather than an arrogant, determined, I will do this, I will do this, and I don't care about the consequences and the cost and repercussions and whether it honors and glorifies God. And so this is just, this is, this is folks, this is authentic Christianity. This is first century Christianity. You know, sometimes some of the stuff we see today, I'm just like, oh, Lord, I don't know if this is an authentic representation of who you are. Let's just go on. Looking at Jesus' temptation. God gave Adam the earth, but as a earth, as a stewardship in Genesis 1, verse 28, the, the 230, the dominion man, mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. But Adam handed over to Satan when he rebelled against God and obeyed the tempter. Folks, it's so important to realize in the spirit realm what happened. When Adam and Eve obeyed the tempter and ate the fruit, fruit that, uh, from a tree that God had said don't, when they obeyed the tempter, when they, when they listened to Satan, they put their allegiance, and this is the reality, the authority that they had been given in Genesis 1 verse 28, that authority was transferred to Satan. That's why on this mountaintop, Satan is offering the kingdoms of the world to, to Jesus because the people of the earth, through their sinful rebellion against God, had chosen time and time again, just as Adam had, to, to, to not obey God, and therefore Satan had authority. There weren't, in those days, literally, the turn of the century, any Christian nations or or, or godly rulers around whose hearts were submitted to God and saying, God, if it's your will, we will do this or that. They were men and women, rulers of the kingdoms of the world, who were doing it, who knows for what reasons, but it was not to please, um, to please God. And so that's just important for us to understand. Andy Stanley said this, the most direct path to where you want to be is not the most ethical one. In Matthew 16, verse 26, Jesus said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, sometimes that arrogant, I will, I will, people by choosing the easy route, the shortcut, um, literally there's an exchange that happens and there's and, and and the reality is there's a shift there's a shift inside of a heart the heart of a man or woman when when you start making those compromises when you start accepting that you know that money under the counter to be able to just just help somebody um, that stuff it it just it, it it affects the soul it's not just a financial little under the counter thing it affects the soul. In the moment of decision, you will gain insight into who you are and more importantly, whose you are. In those moments, they reveal a lot about who you are. I want to tell you about a guy, a Russian, called Sergei Nechayev. Sergei Nechayev. He, um, he lived in the 1800s and he was a Russian revolutionary. And this guy... Let me just say, I did a bit of research about him. He was, I'm going to put this, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to just give you some facts. 
he was indirectly responsible for the deaths of more than a hundred million people. You say, who is this mass murderer? Shouldn't, shouldn't we know about it? How come I haven't heard of him? I hadn't heard of him until I was preparing and I, and I kind of discovered, discovered him. So this is how I discovered him. I googled, the end justifies the means, that quote. And he, he came up with that quote. He wrote about it, he believed. This was like his life's motto, the end justifies the means. And, and this is literally what, we, what we're talking about. You know, the temptation on that mountaintop. Hey, worship me and you get it all. It's a shortcut. It's like your goal is to get the kingdoms of the world. Well, do it the easiest way. Just worship me. And What does this mean? The end justifies the means. Jesus came to reclaim the kingdoms of the earth from Satan. Yes, Satan's offering a shortcut to do it. What does it mean? The end justifies the means. It means that if a goal is morally important enough, any method of getting it is acceptable. He was known, this is Sergei, was known for his single-minded pursuit of revolution by any means necessary, including blackmail and murder. And he literally lived this. Let me tell you a little bit about him. In 1869, on the 21st of November, he committed a murder. He got some friends and they murdered a student. Students, maybe you can relate to this. Why did he murder, murder this, the, this the student? And I'm just going to look in my notes. I just want to get his, his name for you over here. Um, this guy's, uh, uh, he murdered a guy called Ivanov. He murdered Ivanov. Why? Because Ivanov questioned his ideas. One of his, Sergei's ideas was this, the end justifies the means. Ivanov questioned his ideas. So he murdered him. How did he murder him? He got some friends that beat Ivanov up. They strangled him and then they shot him. And they took his body and there was a hole in the ice in Russia in 1869, 21st of November, that's winter there, threw the body in the ice. But as you know, ice uh, is quite good at preserving. Anyway, the body was found and the police um, basically, after about three years, they caught Sergei and they put him in jail and he was sentenced to 20 years hard labor in a Russian prison in, I think it was 1872. Uh, about 10 years after, after being in prison, he died. So he was directly responsible for one person's death. I'm telling you indirectly for a hundred million. And why do I say that? Let me just show you show you this. Um, well, firstly, tell you what he wrote and 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 some of the things he said. Um, he said this: a revolutionary has severed every link with a social order and with the entire civilized world, with the laws good manners, conventions, and morality of that world. He said, a revolutionary is its merciless enemy and continues to inhabit it with only one purpose, to destroy it. This is what he lived for. He wanted to destroy society. He wrote uh, a catechism of revolution. And, he's, uh, and what he said it, it was a program 
for the merciless destruction of society and the state. This guy, now listen, okay, you say, okay, he killed one guy and he paid a price. He died in jail for it. Big deal. But you know what the significant thing about this guy is? That biographers of Lenin said that Lenin put into practice what Sergei Nechayev had taught. There is clear evidence in Lenin's own writings that this is so. Now Lenin basically started the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, which basically brought communism to power in Russia and Russia spread across the world to China, Cambodia, Vietnam. I mean, you know, 20th century history. I don't need to tell you. But the impact of communism on the world, what was its impact? So let me tell you, in 2011, Matthew White published his rough total of 70 million people who died under communist regimes in the 20th century from execution, labor camps, famine, ethnic cleansing, and desperate flight in leaky boats, not counting those killed in wars. I'm quoting this guy. He said 70 million people killed. Um, uh, here's another, another um, though communism has, communism has killed huge numbers of people intentionally, even more of its victims have died from starvation as a result of its cruel projects of social engineering. In 2016, the dissident blog of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation made an effort to compile updated ranges of estimates and concluded that the overall range spans from between 42 and 161 million people killed through communism, with 100 million people being the most commonly cited figure. That idea, the end justifies the means, was implemented by Lenin. It spread across, across the world as communism, mostly by force, spread across the world in the 20th century. And an estimated, and I was trying to research, and estimate 100 million people killed, not through wars, and not even, it's, it's astonishing, ideas have consequences. And this man, the end justifies the means. When I, when I was thinking about this whole thing of, hey, just worship me, and you get it all. What a noble goal. Hey, I've come here for the nations. Okay, well, here's a shortcut. Look at the consequences of this guy, Sergei's idea. His idea of shortcut. Here's a nice little moralistic saying, the end justifies the means. That is the essence of this temptation that Jesus faced. Can you see this? There's so much underneath this. There's so much more to than, than just, hey, worship me. And so let's go on. Look at what this F.F. Um, uh, Bruce said. Now, F.F. Bruce very well-known theologian, he said this, the danger is greatest when the end is good. The danger is greater when the end is good. I'm saying this because as believers, we have incredibly noble goals, kingdom goals. We're going to bring the kingdom in various ways. Some of us are, you know, in, 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 through social means, some of us through literature, some of us in church ministry. I mean, we all want to bring the kingdom. 
hugs its noble goal. If it presents the dangers greatest when the end is good. We have such good objectives. This temptation is a reality for all of us. Let's go on. Deciding to do what's right may cost you. It may cost you time, money and opportunity. It may negatively impact your reputation, at least for the short term. It may actually be an obstacle to your career path. However, here is there, is, sorry, there is never a good reason to violate the principles of God in order to maintain the blessing of God. You don't get the blessing of God by taking a shortcut. If you make the right decision and choose to embrace the consequences, you will find a level of freedom that you didn't know existed. You will be free from the threats of those who claim to have the power to control the outcome of your life. In that moment of decision, you'll gain insight into who you are, and most importantly, whose you are. And most importantly, whose you are. I said I'd come back to just the, the, what Jesus responded. He pulled out his sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and he spoke, it is written, it is written, it is written. And on the third time, he actually spoke a rebuke. And let's just look. Firstly, he said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We looked at that two weeks ago. And then Cass highlighted this last week. Again, it is written, Jesus said of the second temptation, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this week, we're looking at Jesus firstly rebukes Satan. He says, be gone, Satan. And I just looked at the, in the original language, be gone is a strong word. And I was trying to think of a good equivalent and the Afrikaans language comes to mind. And, and literally an equivalent in terms of strength would be that very well-known Afrikaans word, futsak. Okay? Now I'm not saying be, be frivolous or silly if, if, if you're rebuking a demonic influence. I'm not saying that. I'm trying to highlight the linguistic strength with which Jesus was saying, be gone Satan. You know, Jesus, um, James also highlighted, he said, submit yourself to God, resist the devil and he will flee. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's resisting the devil. He says, be gone Satan, for it's written. You see, he's commanding Satan to go. And at the same time, he's using the scripture. And he says, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him. And that, at that point, and then it says, and Satan left him. There was no argument. It was over. Satan left him. He, he commanded Satan to go, spoke the word. Satan left him. And the Bible says that the angels came and ministered to him. And there, and, and I can only imagine they would have brought him really nice bread at the same time. I want to conclude with this quote from Henry Nguyen. Henry Nguyen said this. Our history is about ever and again being tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, and being in charge over being led. And I pray for us. So Lord Jesus, Lord, I want to thank you that you were led by the Spirit into the desert to face things that we, we all face, Lord. And Lord, this morning, I want to pray for every one of us, Lord. Firstly, that we would be determined 
to follow your will. But Lord, not so determined that we are blinded to taking parts in, in going after your will that don't please you, that don't glorify you. Jesus, you faced that temptation. You, were, you, you faced it square on and you did not go down that road. And so I pray for every single one of us, Lord, that we would see where we are tempted to take a path that takes us off the highway of holiness. Lord, you would reveal it to us. Lord, help us in those temptations, Lord. Lord, that we would choose love over power, that we would choose the cross over control, and that we would choose being led over being in charge. Lord, being led by you. Lord, I pray this for every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.